Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We can gain new and even greater understanding of the present when artists address contemporary issues through classics. The acclaimed playwright Will Power reimagined Shakespeare's Richard III in a production that added some modern speech and hip-hop, but he kept Shakespeare's style of verse. Later, we'll hear from Will Power, who has been a visiting professor of theater at Spelman College. The president of Spelman, Dr. Mary Schmidt Campbell, invokes the epic Greek narrative of the Odyssey in her biography of the 20th century African-American artist Romare Bearden, an American Odyssey. The life and work of Romare Bearden spans the artist's journey from North Carolina to Harlem to Paris and beyond intersecting with the likes of James Baldwin, Duke Ellington, Langston Hughes, and Alvin Ailey. I spoke with Dr. Campbell after the book came out in the fall of 2018. Here, she explains her own history with Romare Bearden. I met Romy Bearden a long, long time ago. I was a graduate student. And one of my teachers handed me a, a, a catalog of his work and said, you must go see this artist. So I traveled to New York City and I saw his retrospective that had been organized by the Museum of Modern Art. And I was bowled over. So I left the museum. It was the Studio Museum in Harlem. And I walked all over the city of New York to different museums trying to look for more of his work. And I couldn't find a single example. So my husband suggested, why don't you call him? So those were the days where we had pay phones on yes. the street. And people, people were listed in and telephone were listed. directories. There was a directory on a chain. I called him out of the blue, and he invited me to come to his studio. And from that time on, he became a mentor. He was absolutely so wonderful and generous. And that was in the early 70s? In the early 70s, yes. One of the very special features of this book 
is the letters that he wrote to you. You had very good reproductions of the letters and I was so grateful that he has such clear handwriting. Yes. Wasn't it beautiful? (laughs) And all I could think of was to grant this sort of access to a student is extraordinary. And I can only imagine how grateful you were for that. Absolutely. And when you think today, in these days, you have emails, right? But how much time he spent writing that beautiful handwriting and the little pictures that he would draw and the diagrams he would draw of the way he put together his collages, those were like, they were like gems to me to get them. And I preserved them after all these years. And at the last minute, I just said to my editor, do you think people would be interested in seeing these letters? He said, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Now, are they still in your private collection or are they at the Studio Museum? No, they're still in my private collection. So I haven't decided what I'm going to do with all of the papers and things that I've had um, received from him in the course of my own career. Bearden came from a distinguished family, well-educated and well-to-do. How did his family background influence his trajectory? So it's fascinating that he was born into the home of his great-grandfather. So he actually, his early childhood was spent in the home of someone who had been a slave, who had gone through emancipation, who had lived through Reconstruction, and then his grandmother had been active at one of the early historically black colleges, Bennett. And so he had that experience and his mother. So he had this multi-generational sweep and understanding of the longevity and personally of the longevity and history of black people and the changes that they had undergone from uh, from slavery through emancipation, reconstruction, right on up through the migration. And I think that was kind of part of his cultural DNA. Yes. And to have made this ascent from freed slaves right. to property owners, wealthy right. property owners, and then boom. But in 1915, uh, the family, at least his parents, moved right. to Harlem. And I was hoping you could talk about the new Negro movement yes. and the Harlem into which the little toddler Romy arrived. Yes. He couldn't have gone to a more exciting place because uh, in the early 20th century, Harlem was really considered the black cultural capital of the world. And um, it was not only that black intellectuals congregated there, Alain Locke and W.B. Du Bois, but there was incredible political activism. So Marcus Garvey was organizing people to for a mass back to Africa movement. Or Bearden's own mother was part of the the shift of black voters from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party, which was essential to get FDR um, elected. But it was and and Bearden was surrounded by visual artists as well. So Aaron Douglas, Augusta Savage, Jacob Lawrence, they were all part of his everyday life. And so he was he was in Harlem at a time that it was like an open university. Yes. It was sort of at every turn. He had all these wonderful things happening. And that was just by day. 
Then by night was the whole Harlem cabaret scene. So when he came of age as a young man, he had this incredible landscape of musicians and cabarets and dancers and performers, and he took full advantage of it. <laughs> uh, he sure did. And they appear in his work in these yes. joyous depictions of musicians from the jazz age. Right. His mother you described as a Salonese. Who are some of the people that passed through that household? So he writes in one of those letters, he talks about the people who passed through. Marcus Garvey was there, Paul Robeson, Du Bois, Langston Hughes, Garcia Lorca, Fats Waller, Andy Razoff, who was a, a brilliant I want to songwriter. go to that I mean, you party. You just want to come to that party. Yes. And so he was listening to their conversations, their debates. He was, he had a consciousness about ideas and culture that was at a, an incredible level. He also spent time in Pittsburgh. How did that contrast with his life in Harlem? What a contrast. In Pittsburgh, he lived with his grandparents, his maternal grandparents, and they ran a boarding house for the workers who had migrated, the black workers who had migrated from the South and who would live there in that boarding house and go out every day and do the grueling work in the steel mills. And Bearden describes how grueling it was. He said they, they would come back and their backs would be scorched and his grandmother and grandfather would help apply the cocoa butter on their backs. They were away from their families. So they their grandparents, kind of the boarding house was the family for these men. And he describes the life. He describes how his grandparents made three meals a day, how they would uh, sit out on the front porch and tell stories. And he he sort of became immersed in this kind of working class, blue collar environment that couldn't have been more different than the salons of his mother. And that, in turn, had a powerful impact on his art as well. Absolutely. Because he gained this awareness, and I, I think what may fairly be called a lifelong reverence for hard work right, and for the working people. That's right. And he himself was a working man. He graduated from NYU in 1935 and became a caseworker for the city of New York, and he kept that job for over 30 years. And it's, I had to, I had, the whole time I was writing my book and looking at all the wonderful art that he was making, I had to keep in mind, this was a man who got up at, and had a nine to five job and would come home and then do his artwork. He was a social worker. That's and right. And he was also a songwriter. That's right. He went to, he went to Paris thinking that Paris is where he's going to kind of renew his energy for his painting. And he comes back, and he's so in love with Paris that he decides he needs to raise money to go back. And he thinks, ah, songwriting is a way that I can make some money very quickly. Yeah, Fats Waller visited my right. mother. I can <laughs> right. do this. I can do this, too. <laughs> he tries a, a songwriting, and he's, he's, it's not bad. I mean, uh, uh, Billy Eckstein uh, sings one of his songs, Sea Breeze, and he gets a few others published. But it's not really enough to take him back. And more importantly, it takes him away from painting. 
And he really starts to flounder during the 1950s, during this time in his life. And I really wanted to try to understand in the book what it was like as a as an artist, to try to hold on to your vocation as you're trying to to make it. And um, this was a very dynamic time between his graduation in 1935 and the 1950s. Um, Just a year before that, I think in 1934, he wrote a very important essay. Uh, Would you talk about the impact of that essay and how how that affected his later work. Yes. So he, he even before he graduates from NYU, he he writes this almost artistic manifesto. And he does two things. First, he criticizes other black artists, which much later in his life he takes back. <laughs> he's very harsh. But he's a young he's a young you know, college student. So yeah, he that criticized- foundation was right. not amused. <laughs> right. So he, he criticizes black artists, but then he takes a very powerful stand and he says what black artists should do is take up the cause for all of the issues of black people that were suffering during the Depression. And they should make those issues visible in their art, and that should be the role of the black artist. And that was kind of a manifesto. And that got, and his article got widespread attention in the black press. Um, some of his colleagues that were in Harlem were energized by what Bearden wrote. And he assumed a kind of leadership role uh, in the 30s, having written that article. He had a somewhat different take <laughs> in his later writing on the Negro artist's dilemma. Would you yes. talk about that? So he goes away to war, you know, in the 1940s, comes back, and his ideas about art and race have changed completely. In fact, he's almost exactly the opposite. And he ends that essay by saying, we shouldn't think of ourselves as Negro artists. We have to think of ourselves primarily as artists. And that part, that statement has been repeated over and over and over again. But what's even more important about about that essay is the beginning of the essay where he says the reason we should do that is because the images of black people have been so demeaning and so stereotypical that if we think of ourselves as black artists, we get blinded. We're not able to see the truth because these images are so distorting. So that that part of his essay rarely gets spoken of. But I, I got, got it in my head that that was a very important idea to him that was going to bubble up later in his life. And this part was fascinating to me because when you wrote about, you know, this nasty experience serving your country in World War II, of course, Troops were segregated, mm-hmm. and a fat lot of thanks you got for that. But the idea of emerging from this in the late 40s in throwing himself into abstraction as a way of sort of obliterating racial yes. identity, yes. It, it, it's almost counterintuitive, and yet... It, it's very compelling to see why, well, if we're not, if we are all equal, then how do we have these specific labels? Right. How do we make, why right. should we maintain them? 
Um, then we have a, a very different thing that occurs in the early 60s with his collages. Right. What was revolutionary about Bearden's collages? So it, it, it's, it's interesting. For a long time, people thought uh, the narrative was the civil rights movement came along and Romery Bearden started putting black people back in his art. That's half of, the, half of the case. But the other half is that he had been experimenting with collage throughout the 1950s. So it's clear that he was captivated by what the medium could do uh, for his art. And so that was a very important part that, that he was discovering. A, it was not just painting. He was discovering the new medium of collage. But I, but I have come to, I've come to really believe very firmly that in collage, he was able to picture visually the multiple identities, cultural identities that all of us have. We live in a democracy with so many sources and so many influences that are colliding and, and overlapping into ours. We don't have boundaries around ourselves. We take always from all different parts of our culture. So collage allowed him to have these wonderful, complex images of black culture that pointed out to the many different influences on that culture. And that was the great, I thought that was the great discovery that he made in the 60s. And technology played an important role in that too because photography was crucial to an accurate portrayal of what African Americans were experiencing up to the Civil Rights Act. That's right. Yeah, f- photography. So if you look at the, his history, there are these wonderful photographs of his great-grandparents, of his parents. of all, all along, there's photography. So it was interesting that when it came time for him to start doing his collages, he would do the collages, but then he'd photograph them and blow them up. And it was, and it was this wonderful play between the original collages and these photographic enlargements. So it's, it's as if he's always reminding us of the role that photography plays in seeing and understanding experience. Dr. Campbell, would you mind if I read a tiny oh, portion yeah, sure. from your book? Because I, <laughs> I just love this, what you wrote on the collages. Viewing his collages is like taking a tour of the Uffizi, the Louvre, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Musée de l'Homme, and the Studio Museum in Harlem. (laughs) Reading the history of Chinese painting and viewing a collection of Persian miniatures all at once. That's gorgeous. Thank you. And he was it, and And that was him. It was him. And and another interesting thing you write about is um, how he embraced uh, the European tradition. He did not reject a centuries-old European tradition through exposure with the German emigre artist George Gross. Yes, yes. I'm so glad you mentioned that. George Gross, uh, Bearden was was uh, advised by one of his friends, you you really need to go and spend some time with this artist who just immigrated to the United States. And it was George Gross, a German artist who had been scathing in his criticism of the rising the rise of, of Nazism in Germany. In fact, he had been stripped of his, his citizenship after he left Germany. 
And Bearden found him in the uh, Art Students League, which is where you could go as an artist and you could study with all these great, you could walk into their studios and study with all these great artists. Gross barely spoke a word of English. And of course, Bearden didn't speak German, but they really clicked. And it was from that, from Gross, that he really learned that studying painting and studying the painting of the past was a, uh, as meaningful and important to his education as anything else. And from that moment on, he methodically, in a very disciplined way, studied painting. He studied 17th century Dutch painting. He studied 19th century modernism. He copied. He would take photographs, blow them up, copy the fo- he, he absolutely felt that that was a very important part of his education. And you bring out how this also helped um, him realize his connection to mythology because yes. of classical illusion. And that mythology quite marvelously leads him to Africa. And That's right. um, talk, would you talk about the Conjure Woman? Oh, the Conjure Woman. That is a that's a wonderful personality in his paintings. And I, I had that I had that collage in my office when I was at the Studio Museum, so I used to look at it every single day. But the Conjure Woman is a, a, an image from African American folklore. Um, Conjure Woman, Conjure Man, and she had it was believed that she had powers. If you had somebody that you wanted to get back at, you could go to her and she'd Put a hex on them, or if you had somebody who needed healing, she could help with that. But she was a skill. She was considered a highly regarded and highly skilled person in the community. He takes that figure, and he makes her symbolic of the powers of black women, of women in general. And he repeats that figure over and over and over in his again in his art, and he does different things with it. Sometimes she's got a, a snake wrapped around her and she's dangerous. Or sometimes he makes her part of the story of Odysseus, and she becomes Circe, uh, and she exercises her magic as Circe would. So he discovered this wonderful person uh, that uh, allows him to give this extraordinary depth and breadth to a, a female character. And a healthy portion of your book is devoted to the projections, the prevalence of ritual, and the spirit movement. Would you talk a little about the spirit movement? Well, the prevalence of ritual was the name that he gave to the way in which he could see an everyday act, um, a baptism or a Palm Sunday processional or people sitting at a meal. He could see those rituals, and he could see them repeated in other rituals, in other cultures, at other times. And he was giving the sense that black culture resonates in cultures all over the world at all times. And that was part of his um, understanding black culture as an expansive concept and not a little narrow label. And so that was a very important concept that he introduced to his art. This brings to mind uh, Lorraine Hansberry's statement for me about the universal is in the specific. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. That's great. That's wonderful. Yes. We talked about was he an artist, a black artist, or an artist who happened to be black? 
And he redefined his own identity as an artist. How do you think posterity, how do you think he will be viewed? Because he's certainly a celebrated Mm African-American artist, Mm -hmm. no denying that. Right. So I think I think what Bearden's art tells us is that it is not either or. It's and, and, and. When the Bearden Foundation was celebrating the 100th anniversary of his birth, the Studio Museum in Harlem invited artists to, and said to them, how has Bearden impacted your work? And scores of artists responded with this magnificent work. So it's clear that he will continue to inspire other artists. And that is, in my view, that's the best test as to whether an artist is going to live in posterity, that other artists are going to keep his his work alive. And I think his work will be that kind of place where there, he, he says, there's space for you, there's space for you, there's space for you and for you. We can all come to this work, mm. and we can all find our place in it. You compare Romare Bearden to Odysseus. Ultimately, what was home? What was home? So so I, I think home for him was, first of all, he had a voyage. I mean, I think that was important. He had to try this kind of art, and then that kind of art, and then this kind of art. Coming home was to say, you know what? I'm black. And that's fine. And I can be black and I can be an artist. And I can appeal to black people, but I can appeal to all people. I can have all of it. And I think that was home for him. Dr. Mary Schmidt Campbell is the president of Spelman College. Her book is An American Odyssey, The Life and Work of Romare Bearden. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Dwight Andrews is a renowned musician and composer. He is also a music professor at Emory and senior minister of First Congregational Church in Atlanta. In 2017, I talked with Reverend Andrews about his close relationship with August Wilson, one of the most celebrated playwrights of the 20th century. Wilson asked Dwight to be the music director for five of his plays. He says his final act was officiating at August Wilson's funeral in 2005. I began our conversation by asking Dr. Andrews how he first met Mr. Wilson. August had written a play called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, 
And he submitted it uh, to the O'Neill Playwriting Center in Connecticut. And Lloyd Richards, the wonderful director and dean of the Yale Drama School, uh, read the play and decided to produce it as August's first play. So he really was a new playwright, completely untested. And I was serving at the time as the resident music director of the Yale Repertory Theater. And what year was that? That was early 1980s, probably around 1981, 82. And so Lloyd called us together, and Lloyd said, I have a young playwright I want you to meet. I think there might be some talent there. Oh, you think? (laughs) And and literally, uh, that's how we met. Uh, We both had our yellow pads, and we came in in Lloyd's office. Lloyd said, there's a play about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Do you know anything about Ma Rainey? And I said, of course, I know everything about Ma Rainey. And he said, there's only one there's only one hitch with this new play, and that is that the actors will have to play their musical instruments. They'll have to play live on stage. And I immediately said to Lloyd and to August, well, that's impossible. You'll never find actors good enough to play uh, the, the music. And then August very quietly said, they'll have to play the music. And so that was our first challenge together. Ma Rainey the legendary uh, singer was often called the mother of the blues. And I, I, I would love for us to hear the clip we have. I believe this is Teresa Merritt. That's right. The That's actress right. who played her singing, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Way down south in Alabama, I got a friend they call. Dancing Sammy, who's crazy about the latest dances. Black bottom stomping, two babies prancing. The other night at a swell affair. As soon as the boys found out that I was there, they said, Come on, Ma, let's go to the cabaret. When I got there, you ought to hear them say, I want to see. You call the black bottom. I want to learn that dance. I want to see the dance. So, the play is based on a true life recording session that took place in 1927 with Ma Rainey's recording session for Black Bottom. You're dealing with real music, and then you also have to create some. How did you adapt that rich music for the stage and interweave your own? Well, in some ways, that was the wonderful opportunity of working with August, because in some of the plays, we actually had pieces which we could model as in the case of Ma Rainey. But at the very same time, it was 1980, and so we had to capture a sense of 1927 for 1980 years. And we also had to create arrangements that these actors could play, so it was really threading a needle. And I loved the challenge of both musically and production-wise, creating a reality that seemed to work for the play. Teresa Merritt was wonderful. She brought such a reality and authenticity to the music that it wasn't very hard with her as the centerpiece to build 
the story and the music around. But the the other interesting thing about Ma Rainey is it is a complete fiction uh, about a recording session. August simply took that as a kind of cornerstone of an idea and then created this complicated uh, night in the recording studio to tell the story of jazz musicians and blues musicians in the 1920s. And the inevitable racism and exploitation and meltdowns. Um, It was that meltdown by Charles Dutton's character that left such a profound impact. Um, He was her trumpet player. Would you talk a little bit about his character? Well, talk, if you would, about the play. I think in some ways Ma Rainey really foreshadowed August's genius for telling the story of African Americans, their triumphs, their trials, the complicated nature of their interaction with one another, uh, male to female, old to young. So his character, that is Levy, the young trumpet player, was roughly modeled on a Louis Armstrong kind of character, the next generation of hot trumpet players. And Ma Rainey, in many ways, was a throwback to the old vaudeville uh, tent show kind of uh, performer. So you had this generational conflict, but also with uh, this young trumpet player, you had all of the optimism of the jazz age. You know, he was going to get his record deal and everything was going to be great. And then when it all falls apart, you start seeing the wisdom of the elders come to fruition and you see his black rage uh, bursting forth and ultimately injuring the people that he was closest to. There's something prophetic about that story that carries through all of his plays, but really resonates today, I think, in some ways, the ways in which we injure one another, those that we're closest to. Very much so. Let's hear the final trumpet call. This is what White Andrews wrote for Charles S. Dutton's character, Levy, in August Wilson's play, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It's New Orleans. It's yours. It's all of that, yes. And it's it's juxtaposed against this young trumpet player weeping over the man that he's just killed. And so there's a powerful sense of inevitability in that last moment uh, that literally drifts up into heaven as, as this as the lights go to black. And I think in that play, what August and I discovered were these tremendous possibilities musically to be a part of the story. And so that's what made my time with him so rich. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that time, Dwight, because you said, okay, Lloyd Richards, director of the Yale School of Drama, discovered this promising young playwright called you, but come on, we're, we're talking about genius at work here. How did the friendship unfold? He seemed very warm and accessible. Was he in your experience at first? 
I think he was very uh, reserved, actually, at first, and very thoughtful and very conscious of both this opportunity and also the uncertainty of where it would all go. I, uh, I found him to be a wonderful friend and wonderfully open, uh, but I also found that he had many different layers and many facets to his, uh, to his personality, which made him, uh, in some ways, uh, so rich uh, an artist. Uh, but it was complicated. He had a complicated history, and we came from kind of different backgrounds, and uh, I think the friendship was based in part in our sharing this idea that the culture of the people really tells us who we are. And so I think we we found a certain empathy that allowed the friendship to really bloom over the years. His cycle of what's known as the decades plays, uh, each play taking place in a different time in the 20th century is is what um, has been his legacy, his greatest legacy. I didn't realize that he actually began as a poet. Yes. And fiction writer. Yes, absolutely. And he was quite involved in a circle of poets uh, in Pittsburgh, kind of a uh, kind of the Pittsburgh version of the New Arts Movement or the Black Arts Movement of Larry Neal and others in New York and New Jersey. So there was a wonderful kind of empathy between August and many of his poet friends in Pittsburgh to the writers uh, in New York and people like Baraka and Larry Neal who really were looking at culture in kind of revolutionary ways. And so I think he took very seriously the the idea that black people had to affirm themselves and they had to determine their own kind of benchmarks for dignity and for aspiration. And that's the work that he set out to do. I don't know that at the beginning of his playwriting experience he had decided to do a kind of decade chronicling of the of the 20th century but ultimately I think at least by midway by the fifth or sixth play I think he started to look at the plays as a body of work Mm -hmm. and very very much conscious of his legacy he decided to make that a part of the goal. Joe Turner's come and gone has many mystical elements how did you incorporate those themes for the play's music? Joe Turner presented a lot of wonderful challenges, in part because it really drew on much of the folk music practices that we really don't have a lot of recordings for. Mm -hmm. So I had to become a musical kind of uh, forensic (laughs) specialist because I had to listen to a lot of WPA recordings and many of the field recordings by Alan Lomax and others to try to imagine what this music of the turn of the century might be like and what the people might be um, singing coming out of the South and still with a very strong memory of the the slave legacy. And then, of course, there is the legend of Joe Turner, who was a man who uh, kidnapped blacks along the road and then would keep them for seven years and then release them. This is after slavery. So that becomes a historical backdrop to this rich and dense, and I think in some ways his most poetic play, Hmm. because it's about separation, it's about loss, it's about remembering that is putting back together ourselves. And in some ways, August found Joe Turner's Come and Gone is a wonderful way to layer some of the African elements of spirituality, as well as Christian elements uh, that uh, created an interesting mix. I can remember one time we were in a bar and we were talking 
talking about uh, Joe Turner, and August said, "Well, where's that part in the Bible where where it's about the the Valley of the Dry Bones?" And I said, "Well, of course, August. That's that's in Ezekiel 39. I went to seminary, <laughs> and so and, and so we had this wonderful, engaging talk about it. And I directed him to the very specific place in the Bible that he could find that story, and then he wrote a scene into Joe Turner's Come and Gone, which is that mystical scene of in of the bones coming out of the water in the vision of Harold Loomis. And it is one of the most powerful moments uh, that I've ever experienced in the theater in which the character who's searching for his wife and child has a vision and loses him loses himself to this vision of these bones that are coming out of the water. And so it becomes at once a metaphor for the Middle Passage, as well as this biblical reference of the people of Israel. Can they be remembered and put back together again? And I just think that's a part of his genius, the way he put it together. So we would always laugh late at night, and I could say, August, that's not the way that story goes <laughs> in the Bible. And he would say, I did, I never intended it to be that. Poetic and dramatic <laughs> exactly, license. Exactly. The next two plays on Broadway reference music, and the very titles, The Piano Lesson yes. and Seven Guitars, how was music central to his writing? Well, I think he, even though he was not a musician, uh, had a great love of music and especially the blues. And he really took a lot of the sensibilities and the aesthetic viewpoints of the blues uh, as a point of departure for his writing. So in the piano lesson, which was actually inspired by a painting by Romare Bearden yes. of, of the same title, uh, August decided to ask the question, what's the lesson in the piano lesson? And so I can remember when he was still drafting that, I would always get a late night call when he had started a new play. And he told me about this this play in which there was a ghost and there was a piano and it was a, you know, all, all of these disparate parts. Aunt Esther? Yes, Aunt Esther is referred to, right? And all of the generations of African Americans that are, are carved into this piano. Uh, he said, but he said, the real question is, what's, what's the lesson that's being learned here? What is the mother trying to teach her daughter? And so that profound question drove, I think, the creation of this wonderful epic play called The Piano Lesson. And it was a wonderful challenge because it allowed us to use both folk elements and urban elements in the 1930s. Remember, ragtime and stride are part of the, the traditions that are active, as well as the blues. And so I found it a wonderful way to literally create a kind of gumbo of musical experience in that play. Pittsburgh gumbo. Pittsburgh gumbo. I love it. And it was a wonderful opportunity, frankly, for me, because the piano lesson really incorporated the most original music in all of the plays that I participated in. So all of the thematic material came out of one central theme so that we could kind of manipulate that theme uh, throughout the play as it unfolded. The Reverend Dr. Dwight Andrews is a composer and music professor at Emory University. He serves as senior minister of First Congregational Church of Atlanta. Late February seems so long ago, not just a few months back, but that was when the Alliance Theater presented Seize the King, by Will Power as part of its classic remix project. The goal 
was to engage young audiences with the classics in a contemporary way. Will Power took on Shakespeare, and here he talks about how he reimagined Richard III. You know, it's interesting with Richard III because for better or for worse, a lot of the issues and the themes and the concepts that Shakespeare is wrestling with in his version are still prominent today. And I say better or for worse because in some ways it's good because we have these classics that we can still learn from. It's for worse because sometimes I wish as a species we would have moved past some, <laughs> some of these things of corruption and power and real vileness that's in our world. So I really wanted to take this old classic and contemporize and modernize it and fuse an old ancient world with our world. So the language of the piece is in iambic pentameter, so it's in that ancient poetic meter, but I infuse it with both contemporary and past references. So people say thou and oh heck no and, you know, <laughs> balance it out. And then the same thing with the characters. The characters exist in this fusion world. So they are Anne and Richard and Reverend Shaw and Lord Buckingham, but they also might reference orchards as easily as they reference a strip mall or something like that. So it's almost like the idea is that these things in us, we still are wrestling with. So these worlds that are existed many years ago are still present today, both the good and the bad. And what themes are at the essence of this play? I try to take a frank and honest look into the question of who are we as human beings? You know, that's a pretty big question. Shakespeare was good with yeah, big questions, yeah. as in to be or to not. That's right, that's right, that's right, that's right. And so I think I'm trying to wrestle with that for our society today, questions like power, love, justice, revenge, and underneath all of those things, the question of who are we as a species, what are we, and are we virtuous or are we corrupt and evil? And obviously we have both of those things weaving through us as human beings, but what is the core? And I don't know if I fully answer it, but that's what the exploration is. Now, I feel like I'm a pretty optimistic person. I do feel like we're good, that everyone is good at the heart. But there also is some evidence to maybe suggest the contrary sometimes. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what this piece is exploring. And the other thing is that how do these virtues in us, these beautiful levels of empathy and beauty and warmth that we have as human beings, how does that resurface from one generation to another? And then how does the corruption and the greed and the selfishness and the evil and the violence, how does that resurface from one generation to another? Like waves. So that's kind of what I'm looking at. How are these things reborn? Richard has a backstory. Sure. Would, in today's speech, would you say he was the other? I think that there is some people who feel like Richard, the actual historical figure, wasn't necessarily as vile or as corrupt or as manipulative as it was in the Shakespeare piece. But I'm taken from the idea of what Richard symbolically represents. And to me, Richard was a guy who always felt like he was in the shadow of someone else, that he was never getting his fair due, whether it was from his older brother or whether it was from then his nephew. So he wanted to have a time where he can step into power, but he wasn't really in that that line because after his brother died then the son 
was going to be that. So he's like, I'm tired of being second fiddle, second best, second born. He has this whole line about second, second, second. And I think there are a lot of people, right or wrong, that feel that today in America. They feel like they've been passed over. They feel like they don't have jobs in their towns. And so some people react from that against the system. Some people react against other people, like it's those people's fault. But I feel like Richard, his insecurity and his anger at the core is very relevant today in a lot of populations in America. Not the manifestation of evil, but the feeling of insecurity and of want and like I'm tired of being passed over. That's a very broad-minded look at Mm. it. Mm. We tease that out in this piece, too, because it has to be relevant, particularly for young people. You know, it has to be like, what is this about today? I don't like when people teach Shakespeare or they do stuff and it's just like this kind of archaic stuffy, like dusty, you know, it's like if you can't bring out the issues and the energies of yesterday to make it relevant today, it's no point. Clearly, one need not be a teenager to appreciate Seize the King. Have you heard from students? Have you heard response to the play? Yeah. So we did a workshop last year. If your listeners don't know, workshop is like when you're developing the play, there's no sets, there's no costumes, but you're in a room, the actors are dramatically reading it, no staging, that kind of thing. And so we had some high school students there, and I learned so much from them. They gave great feedback after the show. And, and like you said, the show is not just for high school students. It's a very, it's for adults and high school. It's a mature thing. And my goal is through this piece that there'll be this intergenerational connection through conversation because there's a teenager in the play, but there's also some adults in the play. And that's also kind of the the conflict there. But I learned so much from them, not just what they said in this room, but also watching them watch the piece. And a lot of times I'll say as a writer, talking to the audience after they've experienced the play can be helpful. But what's even more helpful is watching them watch it, seeing when when do they lean in and are silent and are just held by the suspense. When are they all checking their watches and fidgeting and scratching their necks? If you see a moment where most of the audience is kind of like scratching their necks and fidgeting, then maybe there's something in the play that needs to be addressed. (laughs) So I feel like audiences sometimes are very smart individually. Audiences together as one entity is one of the smartest organisms on the planet Earth. Together as a sign of unified entity, if you can tap into that. You are optimistic, Will. Am I? Yeah, I try to be. I am. I am. But, oh, some rough times. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like we're not even, we're not talking to each other even anymore. You know, and, and that's also what I hope sees the king to do. It's not like a victimization. We're trying to, like, have a conversation. What are these different issues, these different sides, and how do we come together to talk? If we don't talk. How can we ever come to any kind of empathy or any kind of resolve? And so your belief in the power of theater to bring about these conversations is stronger than ever, it seems. For me, I have a number of colleagues, friends, who have kind of gone into film and television, and I've been kind of trying to hold out. And there's nothing wrong with film and television. It's a great medium, especially right now with television. It's fantastic as far as storytelling. One of the things that I think theater can do really well is bring people living, breathing, sweating people into a theater, into a space to watch a story with living, breathing, sweating people, and then hopefully have a dialogue, a discourse about it afterwards in that moment. And I think if theater can do that, that's a big part of its purpose. And if it's not, we might as well just stay home and watch Netflix because there's some good stuff on Netflix. You know, I've been to some theaters, and the Alliance is not really one of them, which is great, but some theaters, it's like you see the show, and then as soon as you come out, there's an exit that goes right to the parking lot. You go into your car and you drive 
drive off. But I think that's a great opportunity missed if we don't have gathering spaces, not just before and during, but after the show. So that's, to me, what theater can do best. And what do you hope the theater goers will be engaging with one another or will be talking about on their way out after seeing Seize the King? That's a good question. You know, on their way out, I hope that audiences are wrestling with some of these questions. I don't want them to have one answer or not, but really being frank and honest about these questions of power, of selfishness, of love, of joy, of youthful hope and inspiration. We wrestle with all those things. And I hope that they have discourse, not only with people that are like-minded or politically or socially or economically like-minded, but hopefully have conversations across the aisle. They may not agree. I'm not saying everyone has to agree and leave the theater holding hands and, you know, singing, you know, Kumbaya or something like that. But if we <laughs> in can, iambic that's right, that's right. That's right. Singing in iambic pentameter, exactly. But hopefully they, people can have conversations. I really want to see that intergenerational dialogue. That's something I'm really, really passionate about. Mm, congratulations. Thank you so much. You are a distinguished visiting professor of theater at Spelman College. Yes. Do you teach Shakespeare? Uh, I teach solo performance, and then I teach kind of a playwriting course called Contemporary Theater Writing. So it definitely gets woven in Shakespeare and also verse writing, other kinds of verse writings. We look at Hamilton. We look at Lynn Nottage. We look at different kinds of verse and also natural plays. I haven't had a chance yet to teach an exclusive course on Shakespeare, but I think that's coming. I think I would enjoy going at it a different way and opening up people to what that could be in a contemporary setting. Yes, because you make such a compelling case for why he is a living, breathing entity today. Right, right. Absolutely, absolutely. Before you go, I so admired True Colors' production of your play, Fetch Clay, Make Man. Mm. Might you cast Muhammad Ali in an Elizabethan world? <laughs> well, you know, I think that if Shakespeare was alive today, if you think of Shakespeare's works, he did things about kings, queens, noblemen, noble, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think if he was live today, I think he would write a play about Muhammad Ali because in the United States, we have presidents, but really our royalty is the cultural ambassadors, the artists, the athletes, you know, some of the politicians. But I wouldn't be surprised if he wrote a piece about Muhammad Ali, just like he wrote a piece about Richard III or Othello or King Lear or something like that. I think for better or for worse, that's our royalty. We don't have the same thing as like Queen Elizabeth. It's not the same thing. Our royalty is like Barbara Streisand, and you know what I mean. No, seriously, and you know, uh, you know, Martin Luther King, celebrities, and also like civic leaders. You know, I mean, John F. Kennedy was, but you know, these civic leaders. You know, uh, Susan B. Anthony from from back in the day, and, and celebrities, and, and you know, artists, James Baldwin, and uh, oh, I'll vote for that. You know, all those, those kind of Arthur Miller. You know, those kind of people. You certainly did your part to cast. Muhammad Ali in a heroic and very human way. Thank and you. And your name is Will. Will Powell. So, yeah, yeah. Shakespeare didn't need, to, ah. didn't need to write it. Will Power, this has been fascinating. I applaud your work and I thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. The acclaimed playwright Will Power discussing his Seize the King a retelling of Shakespeare's Richard III. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. 
We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with Atlanta Booksellers dedicated to serving African-American clientele. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.